Hello, and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, your go-to scientific advisors in cannabis and psychedelics. We have a great show today for you, listener, and some very exciting guests joining us. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Bia Labachi. She is the co-founder and executive director of the Shakurna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. She's a public education and cultural specialist at MAPS and holds visiting scholar and adjunct faculty positions at Naropa University and the California Institute of Integral Studies, respectively. Bia, we're so excited to have you on the show. Hello, everybody. Um, greetings from San Francisco, Bay Area, Ohlone Territory. Very excited to be here with you in this nice Friday morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so excited to have you, Bia. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Harry McElroy. He has been practicing integrative medicine for over 25 years and is a board-certified functional medicine doctor. Prior to receiving his MD, he also received a master's degree in oriental medicine. Dr. McElroy is a leading expert in nutritional and plant-based medicines, including medical cannabis. He currently serves as clinical director at BioReset Medical and is a board member of the Shakruna Institute. Hey, everybody. Uh, nice to be back and really looking forward to uh, our conversation this morning. And uh, greetings from uh, my greenhouse in Sonoma County, uh, California. Awesome. Great to have you back on the show, Harry. And finally, I'd like to introduce my favorite pharmacologist and business partner, who you all know well, Dr. Jehan Marku. Hello. Greetings from Texas, where I'm going to attend the ASTM conference. Yes, shout out to D37 and cast member David Valancourt. So um, our show today will start with a game called Name That Psychoactive Plant. We'll then take the opportunity to delve into some recent publications and educational offerings around psychedelic science from Shakruna Institute. Uh, we'll finish up the show by discussing a recent publication from Nature, which claims science is becoming less disruptive, and see if our panelists think psychedelics and cannabis fit in that trend or not. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back, listeners. We're going to dive into our game for today. Guess that psychoactive plant. 20 question style. So let's go ahead and get it started. So for my panelists, um, it's classic 20 questions. You can ask any yes or no question. As a group, you have 20 to try to arrive at what psychoactive plant I have in my mind, or maybe it's on my mind. It's near my <laughs> mind, and you need to guess it. So um, go ahead. I, I, I will kick off the questioning if that's okay with the team. Um, uh, I'm going to try and ask this as simply as I can. Is it a, uh, is it, can I buy it at a grocery store? Like, is it a minimally psychoactive, like commercial product? Or, or just let me just say, can I buy it at a grocery store, like as easily as I buy a bread or something like that? I'm going to say you're probably not going to find this on the shelf at your neighborhood grocery store. I am going to ask a question. Um, do, do you take it by mouth? Uh, let's see. Uh, in, in herbal format, I would say it can be taken by mouth. Yes. Is it bitter? Um, wow. Uh, I have a question. Take, I haven't taken of, it. Uh, give me two seconds. Cause there um, are many alkaloids that are, that are bitter, right? Bia? I don't know. You guys are the pros here. I'm trying to go along. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. You've edited a lot of books. I feel like you you know things. <laughs> okay, so uh, Bia, unfortunately, I don't know the answer because I've never consumed it. Um, I've never consumed it. I don't know if it's bitter. Um, amazing question, but I won't count that against you. You still have 18 questions as a group. Well, because you don't know, I can I get another one? Yeah, then? yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you, you, it doesn't count. So you ah, get another okay. One. Yeah. Um, do you want to try it? Um, I actually am, despite my interest in a variety of plant medicines, um, I am not interested in this. I'm not interested in consuming this plant for psychoactive purposes. Interesting. Wow. 
on so many levels that is interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wow. I wonder. Um, you That's know. almost a clue in itself, Jahan. That's almost a clue in itself if you know me well. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's a that's a big clue there. Um, gosh, uh, let me think about this for a second. Um, does it is it cultivated um, in North America, or actually, should I say, is it cultivated in the United States? And I, and what I mean by that is like, can you find it um, growing? outside versus like, you know, it has to be grown in a specialized environment in the United States. I see. Okay. So I'm going to say a little more of a little more than yes or no. So it grows in the United States, but um, it's not commercially cultivated. Like for example, cannabis is in the United States. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens. Okay. That's four, four questions deep. Are, are, are the psychedelic psychedelic um, uh, aspects of it something that indigenous uh, groups used? Oh God, that's not a yes or no. I'm dying. Point 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 of, point of clarity. Uh, These are not necessarily psychedelics. It's psychoactive. Hmm, so that could be like um, you know uh, caffeine and theobromine plants. Just to the team, I'm talking table exactly. talk here. Yeah, we could. Uh, you know, it could be, you know, maybe it's not like Iboga. Maybe it's not uh, San Pedro. I would not think of those as like, um, you know, strongly sight. You know, it, it might be something a little more, let's call it minimally psychoactive. I'm going to throw out there. Would you would you give it to your mother to try? Oh, wow. Oh, Harry, you, you know my mom a little bit. And this is also a little bit of a clue if you know me or my mom. Absolutely not. Would not give this to my mom. So it's it's probably not cocoa, like as in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> are, so the, are the effects <laughs> stimulant? They are, Bia. Mm. Are the effects psychedelic? Traditionally, no. They just no. Okay, so not, so not something on the sphere of stimulants, social stimulants, something yeah. like yeah, cant it, it or coca yeah, leaf or. Oh, it's uh, it's, so it'd be a, if uh, just if you're going to rattle off plants, each plant you say counts as a guess. So feel free, but just know. no, no, I, I'm withdrawing okay. my guess. I was just thinking out loud. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. I like some of those guesses. Can, um, can, you, can you buy it on Amazon? Um, wow, let me check right quick. Um, <laughs> we do not endorse the, the buying of psychoactive <laughs> plants on commercial retail sites. <laughs> but I, that's a great question. <laughs> um. This is a first for the show. Thank you, Harry. Um, I did a quick search on Amazon, and it turns out, in fact, yes, you can buy this on Amazon in a variety of formats. Okay. So we said uh, it's probably not at a grocery store, but it is on Amazon. Um, it can be taken by mouth. Um, it's uh, more of a stimulant, right? Salvia. It yeah, is yeah, not yeah. salvia, like and now you have 12 guesses. That's fine. That's fine. We're doing good. This is this. It's all. Okay. This is how the game works. I come works. from a soccer nation. Okay, the times you just kick towards the goal. Yeah, you <laughs> got middle, middle. You know, it, maybe go, maybe you got a goal. That's yeah, how yeah. it is. You, you see, have yeah. to combine. You know. Absolutely. The you know, absolute you, strategy with some luck. Yeah. And, and you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So you know. And you got twelve. You got twelve shots. You have twelve crosses or shots or passes left. So be careful. Um, so, you know, there's one. I, I I have a guess, but I I'm I'm you know it, it might be available in a pharmaceutical form, but maybe that's more like a pharmacy. But I'm. You guys can also you, you guys can also use the internet. You can totally just Google. You can just Google all you want. Um, oh, it's an so, open internet test. Drugs on Amazon. Yeah. Wow. Good luck with that. <laughs> try try yeah. Alibaba. See what you find. See, um, see what you okay. can say. But so we know it. So it's it's stimulating. I'm going to. Can I make a guess? Yeah. I want to. Is it a Fedra? <laughs> ding 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 ding. Oh, Jayhan won the game. Mormon tea, like we like. Was- yeah, and I was I was wondering because like a fedrine is like in a pharmaceutical form, but it's not like you can buy the plant. The plant's restricted, but you can buy it in like 
uh, nasal decongestants and stuff like that. But good job, team. Good job, everyone. Uh, it was team effort. I, I headed in the goal. Bia took that shot, and then I just picked up the garbage shot and chipped it in there. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. I passed it on to you. They actually count passes to goals as a measure. Yeah. I know you guys know, don't know a lot about soccer, but I'm oh. sure there's like baseball equivalents, uh, <laughs> American football equivalents. So, so to your point, though, Nigam, it is naturally found all over the desert southwest. And um, it uh, is kind of a little stick, little plant that you can take a bunch of it and make it into a tea. And it's actually a light, lightly stimulating, right? It, to, to extract it is where the real mojo is from, the, from those properties. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so that's how exactly. the, the Mormons just took, this is called Mormon tea because yeah. that's what they took when they caravaned across the country. Like, we're going to get there. Take some of this ephedra. And they're just like, those covered wagons they, were just they, like, they got to, to the Utah. east side of what is now the Great Salt Lake. And they said, this is the place and had a cup of Mormon tea <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Nice. But there's a very deep question that I still, it's unresolved for me. Let's hear it. Why wouldn't you give this to your mom? Oh, uh, my mom has um, some heart uh, issues, so uh, I wouldn't give her any stimulants. I also personally just don't use stimulants. I don't use caffeine even, so I also just wouldn't take it. Even if you purchased it off the internet, that still wouldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that was good. That was a good. That was a good question, Bia. That's no, a it's great for, question. Yeah, for my mom and I, it's for different. It's it's for different reasons. But just to clarify, um. For her, um, we're you know protecting her heart health and her longevity, um, so stimulants aren't helpful there. For me, I just uh, I did use caffeine in the past, um, but I just I just don't like it anymore. I I find it to be a unnecessary um, part of my life, so I just don't use it. Um, and that's been working great for me. I gave up caffeine in 2016, wow. and I'm still walking around, so it's pretty cool. Some days faster than others, I imagine. <laughs> I want to say one other thing before we go on uh, to our next segment. Um, Bia, even though I was born in the U.S., um, I watch European soccer like just it's like the third most important thing in my life. I'm a huge European soccer fan. Uh, don't um, watch baseball or American football. So um, I'm with you. We actually put uh, matches on our work calendar so that yeah. we know. <laughs> <laughs> we have like, yeah, we have like big World Cup matches and big like Premier League, Champions League matches like on our like work calendar. So that that's where we're at at Marco and Aurora. So <laughs> I'm afraid to know what are the other two more important things than soccer. <laughs> Let's <laughs> that, well, we'll save, some, we'll save some of, save some of that for segment two. We got to yeah. save some. <laughs> I wasn't uh, I wasn't given a soccer ball when I was born. So I, you know, I have a few priorities above it. But um, anyways, uh, all right, panelists, uh, thank you so much. That was fun um, for folks out there. Uh, you can go and read about um, Mormon tea and the ephedra plant online and learn about herbs and send us an email. So we will be back shortly uh, after a message from our sponsor uh, with our next segment. The American Psychedelic Practitioners Association is the national home for a diverse community of psychedelic practitioners. Together, we're building critical field infrastructure, creating member connectivity, and offering events and education to help safely integrate psychedelics into the U.S. healthcare system. Sign up to be a member today at www.thepsychedelicassociation.org. And we're back. We're very lucky to have Dr. Bia Labachi, co-founder and executive director of Shakruna Institute, here with us today. Shakruna is well known in the psychedelics field, but for those who are unfamiliar, I'm going to share Shakruna's mission and vision statement. The mission. We promote reciprocity in the psychedelic community and support the protection of sacred plants and cultural traditions. 
We advance psychedelic justice through curating critical conversations and uplifting the voices of women, queer people, indigenous peoples, people of color, and the global South in the field of psychedelic science. Vision. We aim to co-create a world where plant medicines and other psychedelics are understood, protected, honored, and valued as part of our cultural identity and integrated into our social, legal, and healthcare systems in a way that is equitable and just. So Shakurna is constantly producing high-quality articles and educational materials in the field of psychedelics, among other very valuable resources and programs. So today we're going to discuss um, one article and one program, and the article is titled Placebo Problems, Boundary Works in the Psychedelic Science Renaissance, which was written by Catherine Hendy and edited by Bia. And the course is titled Critical Perspectives on Knowledge Production in Psychedelic Science. So I'll give a short overview um, of these two items before we jump into a discussion with the group. The article takes us through a historical journey of how anthropologists, doctors, and institutions have learned about medicine over time, beginning with ancient indigenous knowledge around medicinal plants and ending with today's gold standard randomized clinical trials. The article highlights that randomized controlled trials and especially double blinding of these trials where neither the patient nor the doctor knows if the patient is getting the drug or the placebo were not always uh, a thing. That was not always how it was done. In fact, there was significant controversy over time with concerns raised that double blinding may not have been ethical. The article then delves into specifics as they relate to Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies or MAPS clinical trials for MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. In the beginning, the studies used lactose, aka sugar pill, as a placebo. At one point, they used Ritalin as a placebo. Um, later, they attempted a non-therapeutic dose of MDMA itself before returning to the sugar pill. There was mention in the article as well about the idea of using therapy alone as the placebo. Their article then brings up this topic of boundary work. So this is a concept that was defined by Thomas Guerin, a sociologist who initially used it to discuss the problem of demarcation, the philosophical difficulty of coming up with a rigorous delineation between what is science and what is not science. So, and he goes on to make the point that in the case of placebo controls, it is less that scientists themselves declared that non-placebo controlled studies were unscientific and more that new norms for research were institutionalized, which excluded other modes of knowledge production about psychedelics. And rather than achieving a new neurochemical balance, psychedelic therapy leverages a radical change in consciousness. Thus, at its core, psychedelic therapy challenges the very model of psychopharmacological intervention that is commonly used today. And uh, to clarify, that last that last sentence was actually part of the uh, article written by uh, Catherine Hendy. So um, this takes us just briefly to the course Shakruna is offering. Again, it's titled Critical Perspectives on Knowledge Production in Psychedelic Science. I wanted to bring this to the show because uh, this is often discussed in the in the psychedelics field about the issue with placebo controls and, and how do we deal with that. But there's few if anybody I've seen in the field, taking it to the level that Shakruna is with providing such a valuable and thorough educational resource that could empower interested folks and licensed healthcare professionals to learn about this topic at a high level in a meaningful way and bring it into their professional realm. So um, at this point, I'd like to pass the mic to Bia. Um, Bia, we'd love for you to share uh, a little bit about the course and what inspired uh, you and your colleagues at Shakruna to create it. Thanks, Negan. Thanks for this intro and uh, for putting the spotlight on our recent publication. Actually, that article is a summary of a piece that appeared in a book that we edited on psychedelic healing and cultural perspectives. Uh, which was originally created out of MAPS Psychedelic Science 2017. These issues have been long um, issues of my personal interest as a social scientist, as an anthropologist. 
So there is all this boom and all this money and all these startups and all this interest and all this stock market and investors and everybody's talking about the science and psychedelics and the potentials and the healing. And as we know, there is often critical thinking missing in this field. And when people want to be mindful and think about other perspectives, there is a a Jedi, a justice, diversity, inclusion, interest, and we talk about cultural sensitivity and the need to include other voices. Uh, but hardly ever, uh, we, we talk about social justice kind of as apart from the science. So the science sort of stays above as the truth and the evidence. And then when we want to be progressive, we talk about how to be inclusive and how to make the best to have everybody on the table. But we hardly ever take into account how how the science is produced. And we don't think the science critically. We don't think how this knowledge is produced, why, by who, what are the historical, political, and economical economic factors that play uh, into the production of this, this science. What are the perspectives, the questions, the methods, uh, the narratives that are elevated and which ones are... Um, marginalized, who gets to do this research? What are the historical foundations? So, for example, you mentioned placebos. That's a big topic. Uh, there are many challenges with uh, this format of placebos and very little discussion about this topic and very little investigation about why do placebos work <laughs> if they are so powerful why don't we look at that, for example? Don't they? Can they teach us anything? Instead of trying to see how how to beat the placebo, but what is it? What? Why does it make it work? The other thing that really we don't get a lot of attention to is 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 blinding because obviously psychedelics are super strong and it's very hard to blind, and people have come up with all kinds of techniques and strategies to to try to blind and let's say cheat the experienced user, but that's very complicated. And some placebos, sometimes they have a slight psychoactivity to it, but that creates a confusion on the uh, on the results. And so all of these discussions are discussions that the scientists have that often, often do not take place on the papers itself. They are talked in the hallways, they are talked uh, on personal meetings, on the sides, but there's not a lot of evidence. The other, the other topic that is a big one is when you're doing uh, a research design, you decide to uh, select certain variables to, to measure. And so what are the variables that you select? And what is the criteria? And if people start to measure those variables, then others that don't have those experiences are not included. It sort of becomes a model experience that it's used to measure other experiences. And often subjective experience is excluded from this. The other topic is a lot of this research that is very celebrated, uh, talking about mystical experiences and so forth, has been based in really out-of-dated theories of religion. And uh, so sometimes they are selecting uh, aspects to, to point in the studies that are often not in dialogue with social scientists and researchers of religion. That's another problem. But I guess that, uh, you know, the main, main problem is, is this very idea that we can study certain substance and you can isolate what is the effect of the drug and what is the set and setting. And by trying to do that, it's a real fiction that you have to create to make it work because we all know that healing is a holistic experience and you can't really separate where one thing starts and where the other one um, ends. And even this very classification of drugs set and setting, it could be challenged because at the end of the, way, the day, there is this idea that the drugs carry a property that is inherent to them that has an effect. And so... You would try to, to isolate this. It's this famous theory of the magic bullet, that there is this one ketonsensual essence to a substance that makes it work, when we know that in practical terms, it doesn't work like that. And it doesn't end up, add up to, say, drugs plus set and setting as a whole. 
And one of the other classic effects that I'm sure uh, your colleague that is uh, into cannabis knows very well has to do, and also Harry, that is a medical doctor expert on, on cannabis, with the so-called entourage effect. The fact that these substances have multiple molecules, multiple principles, multiple interactions, and the and and there is this attempt to separate uh, all of this. So anyway, I could go on and on. I just want to conclude by saying that this is not to talk about indigenous perspectives and indigenous knowledge. That's a whole other animal <laughs> and a whole other can of worms if we want to talk about that. And also the differences between what has been produced in the global north and the global south. So we are inviting all of you that are hearing this to join us in this adventure of social science, humanities, look into the field of psychedelic science, into the knowledge production, into the hierarchies between global north and global south, into including other perspectives, into understanding the historical roots of the creation of the science and the main dilemmas. And this is not to vilify scientists and researchers because they are trying also to grapple with those problems. And if you talk to the scientists behind the scenes, if you have a scoop, if you go inside the lab, you see that they are also having those conversations and they also suffer a lot of pressure from big pharma, from research grants, from agendas that are authorized and others that are non-authorized, those that are sponsored and those that are not sponsored. And I'm happy to say that we have a few cool scientists signing up for this course, and we're really excited. Thank you, Bia. That was, uh, wow, uh, what an explanation. And it was kind of interesting. Halfway through, I was just thinking, I think the answer to my question is I need to sign up for this course. <laughs> and um, for folks who haven't seen um, the course description, we'll post that uh, along with the episode and um Wow, there's just so many great topics, including uh, specific look, like you said, about Global North versus Global South, about um, ex- uh, the placebo issue, about uh, lessons learned from existing clinical trials with psilocybin. Uh, and that's just a few of the many, many amazing topics. So um, to, uh, to keep the conversation going, uh, I wanted to take it over to Harry. Uh, so Harry, as a medical doctor who works in integrative medicine and has deep experience with herbalism. What's your perspective on this topic of double-blind, randomized controlled trials when it comes to strong psychoactives like psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's problematic. I, th- I think first, first of all, when you're if you're going to spend the time to to you know create and structure uh, a study, you know how valid and how meaningful is the data that you're coming from. And so, part of my thing, I went to to acupuncture in Chinese medical school, as you talked about before. I went to medical school, and one of the things um, that I was involved with at that time was this whole idea of sham acupuncture, right? Like, how can you? I mean, that's what what's harder to do a placebo than a a needle stick, right? Um, And I think that what was interesting to me was the fact that we were having having this conversation and like there's so much pressure to to do these specific types of studies, right, that meet the the criteria of the scientific community, while at the same time recognizing that like, is this necessary and is it valid? So, you know, Chinese medicine, for, for an example, I mean, there you can go back to like 1050 AD and see the conversations between like Sun Simiao and another, another uh, academic Chinese practitioner going through and saying, oh, well, if you do the formula this way, it's, it, it works you know, in this manner. But if you add a little bit more Wu Wei Zhe or something else, it has a different reaction. And that, to me, just speaks to the complexity of taking care of humans, right? This is a very um, uh, multifactorial you know, social justice epigenetics, all of the things that we're really paying more attention to and recognizing that it's harder and harder to really have a clear lens on, on what is um, effective and how do we help people. And I would just say, and I'm going to come back to it, but like my thing as a clinician is what I really, I'm not an academic researcher. I've been involved in some studies, but what I'm really interested is in results, right? Is helping people to get better. And, and I think that sometimes the studies can be, you know, a double blind study can be effective uh, in pushing that agenda. And then sometimes we can get uh, you know, essentially handicapped to where we're not able to to move forward and see what's in front of us. And so, 
real quickly on that, what I mean is that is that if you um, have a double blind study, controlled study, placebo controlled study, and it's like a pharmaceutical and it beats placebo by a lot, right? Something that like the SSRIs never did, but another another drug where it's so clear that was a benefit. Well, then to, to wrap that into the marketing and the rollout of that drug, like there is there is validity there and, and people um, are more likely to get helped by it. Right. I think the problem is, is when that's not possible and psycho and psychedelics are, are a, a clear example of that very difficult to have a placebo psychoactive experience. And at the same time, what we're seeing with the, the rollout of like MDMA for PTSD, 67% of the people at one year no longer qualifying for the diagnosis of PTSD, we're, we're at this thing of like, oh, this is incredibly difficult to do a double blind study with a, a psychoactive substance. And we're getting the best results using these substances um, than, than any pharmaceutical would ever be able to uh, you know, attain, or at least up until now. And so I think... Do I think it's important? Do I like to support scientific inquiry? Yes, but I also think that if we are hung up on, oh, I'm not going to go forward as a clinician until that data is there, then we're gonna we are gonna fall behind in our you know dramatic need to uh, to be helping people today. This makes me think, Harry. What will uh, clinical trials look like in the year 2095? Like what? Uh, you know, my grandkids are going to be participating in a clinical trial and what's it going to be like? Is it going to harness their energetic fields or will it harness the mysticism of their ancestors? I'm not sure. Um, so, uh, Jehan, um, that, that takes us to you. You've been doing work with psychoactives for over 20 years now, a uh, huge body of work in the cannabis field. Uh, you've been working in psychedelics for the past few years through our firm. I'm very curious to learn. I mean, this is also an issue with cannabinoid-related research, um, I believe. So I'm very curious. Are there any lessons uh, throughout your, you know, your career, your long history that are applicable here? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot um, to learn from cannabis. One is because if you're smoking a product or inhaling it, there are some dead giveaways, including the smell. Um, and, and I think the problem with is cannabis and with all psychedelics is the form, the, pr the form that is delivered. If you're brewing up some ayahuasca, it might have a very particular taste, right? Versus ayahuasca in a pill versus MDMA in a pill. Um, it's very easy to disguise it in that way. So cannabis has always had this issue of what is a, an, an inhalable cannabis placebo because the terpenes... Um, those compounds, as Bia uh, referred to, have their own pharmacological effects, their own effects on mood. And definitely, like in the literature, you know, I think it was in 1973, a researcher brought people in and people thought they, they smoked placebo cannabis and they felt high. They had like a cannabis-like experience. Um, again, it was like set and setting thing. Also, I think when you administer these products can also play a role, especially if you're looking at mood and things like inhibition. If you administer things at night, um, other things are happening in the brain at, at those times. And I think we have to remember, I very much agree with what was said, is we're not competing with placebos. Placebos tell us how the drugs work. How is the treatment working? Um, and placebos can cause an effect in people and they cause effects. We don't fully understand why, but if you give someone a painkiller um, and it's a placebo and they take it, you can look on an fMRI and in some of the people, they will release endorphins. Um, they've given people expensive placebos to treat Parkinson's and like 9% of the patient's symptoms improve only with the $1,500 placebo, not with the $100 placebo. So there's a huge amount of societal expectations. They've done studies where they've applied electroshock to people and given them low, medium, and high-priced placebos, like low, medium, high-priced painkillers. And the high-priced painkillers, even though they're placebos, always work. And I, so I think that we have to think about that we're limited by the physiology of the brain, but there's a lot there. And, and they're, just because uh, we're having a what's called a placebo effect doesn't mean it's not real. Not everyone has the same effect from a placebo interaction, but not everyone has the same effect from a drug. If we really wanted to understand this, you know, it's true, we might have to design studies a little bit differently um, versus like saying everyone you're getting the treatment and giving some people a placebo and then kind of like he 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 laughing behind the screen. That doesn't really happen. But like, 
Instead, tell people they're getting a placebo and give them the psychedelic. And I think we'd start to understand more about placebos and how they work. Because again, we have to make the placebo the object of this hypothesis-driven research instead of a control for the research if we want to start to dive into that. And there really has not been a lot of research out there. But people have known for years that people can have these like contact highs, which is a term that's misused a lot. It's not just from accidental or passive drug exposure. There's a lot of societal factors, expectation factors, Pavlovian responses um, to that. And I think even in like tea call, Sasha Shulgin talks about a guy who didn't take the drug, but had like the, you know, same, the same experience as everyone else and even a come down from the psychedelic over four hours. Um, so, the, you know, these reports, you know, they exist there in the anecdotal literature. But again, I think we have to be really careful how we define the placebo. Again, if it's a pill, single agent compound, I think it's pretty easy. And we should also like even humans at discriminating drugs, we're, we're not that good at it. We think we're good at it. We might be hallucinating about how good we are at discriminating with drugs. Uh, for example, they, they administered Ritalin and cocaine by injection to regular cocaine users, and they couldn't tell the difference between what they were getting administered. And neither could the clinicians looking at physiological things like activity in the brain and stuff like that. So um, we really, I think, have to be careful how we define placebos because there are compounds in there. We might be like, oh, it just has a smell. That's not important. The smell of the product could be very important for the placebo effect. The color could be, what people, information they're exposed to, and even their previous history with substances could impact um, those things. So uh, yeah, that's, that's all. I guess I'll leave it there for a moment. The siren is sounding, so that must mean it's time to wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've really just uh, really just cracked open the the enormous complexity of the issue and also given me a nice segue for my next question for Bia. Uh, Bia, I'm so curious in the uh, article that we reviewed, there's discussion of other ways that other cultures have collected this type of information. There's turns out there's other ways beyond the FDA's randomized controlled trial to collect information about psychoactives. So, um, Bia, could you, um, could you share with us a little bit? How, how do other cultures collect this information? How, how do indigenous cultures collect this information and, and make value of it? Yeah, I'm not sure, uh, you know, collect information. I mean, there's other ways of knowing that, for example, if you talk about indigenous, indigenous shamanism, it is a form of science, of native science. We always tend to think that science is, is ours and the other people have some ethno-medicine or some ethno-form of knowledge, but we don't, we don't think of ourselves, of our own science as ethno. Uh, we're not like our science is the truth and it's universal and it's not ethno-science. It's just the science, the knowledge, uh, and then all the others are ethno-this or ethno-that. Uh, so in these other cultures, for their own perspectives, they have their own systems of knowing. And it's a kind of different paradigm that is based on different conceptualizations of what is nature and what is culture and what is animated and what is not animated. So this idea that nature is an object that we can dominate and that is there to serve us. Uh, is not shared across all cultures. This idea that uh, we came from, we were originally monkeys and that we became humans and that we have a rationality and that we're not animals and that we're superior to other all the other species and we are on top of the chain. It's not common to all other cultures. Other cultures have other understandings uh, of our common shared uh, nature and culture as species with plants, with uh, animals, with rocks, with mountains, with rivers, uh, with stars. So it's a big, big discussion. It's other ways of knowledge, other ways of knowing, and uh, based on different conceptualizations of what is material and what is material, what has agency, what has intentionality, what is alive, what has some kind of spirit or culture to it. So in one line for a lot of uh, Amerindian cultures, you know, there there is this idea that plants are animated and they are spirits, in fact, and they are human beings deep inside, and they have their 
their views, their objectives, their agenda, their idiosyncrasies, their personality, their social lives. And you learn by communicating with plants. And under the effect of these plants, you can see the true nature of these plants. And you can see this, this world that is invisible. So this idea that we have a visible world, a material one, and another invisible, non-human world, a world beyond, a world of spiritual beings, uh, that is in fact the one that is prevalent and guides the visible world. And so this is just one dimension of reality that we see. And shamanism is a lot based on this idea that by using these plants, you get in touch with the spirit of the plants and you learn from them directly. So if you ask a lot of indigenous people, how did they learn? They say the plants taught them. How did they find, how, how were they able to find this combination? This is one of the greatest mysteries. All of us that are ayahuasca lovers, I'm putting myself on that category. I know there are some other suspects here that might fit. Um, and listening to us. Out of all of those plants in the Amazon, how did they figure out to combine a particular set of plants? How many attempts? How many tries? How many years? How many cultures? How many different locations was this happening? And how did they find find this knowledge? And they, if you ask indigenous people, they said, the plants taught me. And what does it mean to epistemologically take that seriously? And not superstition or not say, well, you know, it's mysticism or it's some, you know, primitive people with some weird ideas that are, you know, fun and exotic for for us to think about, but, you know, it's just all symbolic. Like, how do we take that seriously? And those are big questions. And anthropology has dedicated a lot of time into looking into them. And we have also wonderful contemporary indigenous intellectuals talking to us from the heart of the Amazon, from all over, you know, countries in Latin America, in the United States, teaching us to, calling our attention to look to reality under other lenses. And we should pay attention because obviously our models are quite problematic and the ways that we have been <laughs> arriving until we are here now and the planetary crisis, a human rights crisis and all kinds of challenges and problems including the pandemic, should really make us try to stop and think about our own values and our own paradigms, our own sacred concepts, and, and, and take into account that there's other ways of understanding and knowing. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for that response, Bia. That's, um, wow. That's, uh, I asked this question about how else can we collect data? And then I just learned so much other stuff from you and uh, really enjoyed that perspective. Can I, can I piggyback on top of that? Yeah, well, uh, Harry, go ahead and get your comment in and then we'll jump to our next segment. Yeah, I just wanted to really, and come back to it, but like really it's this concept of listening as a, as a core component of healthcare and, and taking care of people and how we listen um, can really be done through a different lens, but it, it, it takes time and patience and, that's something that the double blind, uh, you know, study is not necessarily open to uh, listening to. Wow, um, great comment. So, okay, um, thank you, Bia. Thank you, Harry. Uh, thank you, Jahan. Thank you, listener. Uh, we are going to take a short break, and we will be right back with our final segment, Rapid Fire Science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal.
Now we're going to jump into rapid fire science. Today, we'll use a recent article published in Nature as a jumping off point for our conversation, where I'd like to discuss if the findings of this paper apply to psychedelics research or not. The article is titled, Papers and Patents Becoming Less Disruptive Over Time. I'm going to share a few tidbits I found interesting uh, from this article before we jump into our discussion. So um, this article is based on assessment of 45 million peer-reviewed publications and 39 million patents. Uh, And they gave a good example of defining what is disruptive versus what is not disruptive. So they gave this example of a Nobel Prize that was won in uh, 1965 by Kahn and Sham. And the paper solidified a theory about calculating the structure of electrons, which its value was that it cemented previous research. So basically, they put forward this theory that cemented bodies of prior research. It was a large impact in the field, and they won a Nobel Prize. Uh, So that was good. That was influential. That was meaningful, but it wasn't disruptive. So the disruptive example they gave is of Watson and Crick uh, defining the structure of DNA as the double helix. Now, this was hugely disruptive and opened whole new realms of science. So I just thought that example was really crucial. So a few other tidbits, uh, they talk about um, how they measured this uh, lack of disruption. So there were a few methods. One was that they looked at the citations. So the one-liner is that if a paper or patent is disruptive, the subsequent work that cites it is less likely to also cite its predecessors. So for the Watson and Crick example, after Watson and Crick, you wouldn't cite anything that came before Watson and Crick because it was not true anymore. Um, And that's a great example of why truth is kind of a confusing topic. Um, Anyways, uh, they also discussed the simply the words that authors use to describe their own research going from words like improve, enhance, increase versus words like uh, create, find, determine, report, discover. Um, So uh, there were some other couple, just other interesting ones. Oh, they, they did an analysis to show that there's a lot of theories of, oh, why there's less disruptive science is because, oh, maybe it's the citation method changed. Maybe it's the linguistics changed. Maybe it's the authorship or publication practices changed. Not the case, according to the authors. And they also talk about the issue of how funding and how the structure of the scientific community where the value comes from. So there's this publish or die issue. There's an issue with uh, the profit motive for patents. And and they look at this and they make suggestions that there may be a benefit to governmental and policymakers to shifting those agendas, uh, shifting those goalposts, shifting the motivations for researchers and scientists to enable on a societal level a move back to more disruptive science. Final comment I'll make is that um, everyone who's sweating and getting nervous that there's no more uh, innovation happening, they did note, importantly, that the sheer number of disruptive discoveries has remained steady. But when you look at it compared to the bodies, the percentage of the field, there is less disruption overall occurring over time. So, um, okay, so my, my first question uh for the panel is about this uh is about psychedelics so psychedelics research is simultaneously ancient and also rather new um in in the in modern science so what do we think will it fall into the category of incremental and based on the same old citations or is it already or will it be disruptive and uh, Jehan, I'd love to start with you. Uh, 
Thank you. So I think that's um, you know a good philosophical question, and similar things have been you know debated by the you know, philosophers of this area for a while, like Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. You know, it takes about a hundred people to adopt a new idea and start using it, or for all the gatekeepers who keep pushing forward their idea to simply die. And then there's no more torchbearers for that idea and new ideas and new people come forward. Like that, that's, that's a real thing. So, you know, we talk about disruption, you know, I think sometimes technology can be very disruptive. Um, you know, CRISPR with gene editing, very disruptive um, to the point that's so disruptive that people don't need like patents for it because they can do it so easily, like in a lab, in a hospital lab, like you, you can, you have all the tools you need, you know, regarding psychedelics, um, you know, I think for major discoveries of psychedelics, you have to remember that things like Nobel prizes and stuff don't go out, um, to posthumously. So if you die before your stuff is recognized or voted on by a panel of Swedish Kings or however the Nobel prize is determined these days, um, you know, you, you don't get it. You don't get recognition. Like, uh, I think it was, uh, Rosalind Franklin, you know, didn't get, um, didn't get any credit for the Nobel Prize for the DNA thing from Crick because she had died uh, by that time um, from exposure to laboratory conditions to generate the information needed for them to get the prize. So um, I think disruption has to do with how we use it, how it's displaced, and how long those things that cling on to not changing um, stick around. However, to put this on its head, psychedelics may actually be important uh, for novel perspectives in terms of generating those breakthroughs. You know, I think, you know, we always have to be like drugs are bad, okay, but there are a lot of people uh, who have said that psychedelics have unlocked uh, a lot of personal introspection and, and shatter sort of these breakthroughs, help us understand how everything is done today. You know, my favorite story is um, the guy who got the Nobel Prize for discovering PCR, DNA replication. It was probably revolutionaries lab work. You see it all the time in forensic shows or crime shows and CSI where they're like, we found someone's DNA sample. Let's take it in and analyze it. They use PCR. And um, Mullis, I believe is the guy's name, said, he said uh, something like, would I have invented PCR if I hadn't taken LSD? I seriously doubt it. And he said, I could sit on a DNA molecule and watch the polymers go by. And he said he learned that partly on... Uh, psychedelic drugs. Some people argue that Francis Crick himself, who was co-awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, might have been on LSD. Um, you know, Bob Dylan, the bard of psychedelics, uh, used psychedelics, and he even talks about um, LSD as a medicine in, in interviews as well. And he, again, dis it's not he's not technology, but you know, his songs you could say were disruptive. I mean, he got one guy out of prison uh, with the Hurricane song. Um, and, and even theoretical physicists like Richard Feynman have used LSD and, and um, have uh, credited it with, um, you know, helping them destroy preconceived notions um, and experiments. Um, so, uh, so I think like we should think about these things not just as being just creating disruptive technology, but how these things might actually, they change perspectives for people and have historically potentially led to um, creating those disruptive technologies that don't have to do with psychedelics, but the process of like, I want to think about this thing and change my perspective on it um, and apply that towards technology. That could be disruptive if we have all these really, really smart people trying to solve problems um, and looking at them in a different way. Again, that is just one perspective that 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 is out there. Um, but I think if you can change treatment paradigms um, to go back to like, can psychedelics and the cannabinoids be disruptive? I think absolutely for medicine. I mean, if you create a new randomized controlled trial design so you can study novel medicines and treatments, like that would be a huge game changer. Um, if you could crack the code of placebos because of psychedelics and how we understand the human brain, that would be um, a huge game changer, I think, as well. Um, so I'm going to leave it there for a minute. But, um, that, you know, I just wanted to say that it goes both ways, both there can be patents and papers for psychedelics that can disrupt our current understanding of things. And people are using psychedelics to come up with disruptive technology um, as well. 
Wow. I, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your kind of alternate angle on that. Uh, as I was reading this and as I was writing these questions, I wasn't really thinking at all about how many Nobel Prize winners post invention of LSD were in or it will, we spoke about LSD here, but let me try again. How many Nobel Prize winners in the history have taken psychedelics in their life or the psychedelics in influence their specific work that they receive the award for that that's a question and that's uh that's an interesting topic we can develop uh more yeah there you go psychedelics again opening up more questions than the world can answer (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah a real quick thing that is we're talking about disruption and the creativity that comes out of that right or potentially comes out of it and then it's great to have the ability to validate that in some study but but specifically around the disruption i mean psychedelics talking about classic ones and how they're downregulating the default mode network, that's actually a disruption from between yourself and your personal narrative. And so I think just being able to take a step back, and this is what I see clinically so much, it's like if we can just, you know, free ourselves of, of our own uh, narrative ego, you know, briefly, even for a few hours, that's such an internal disruption that that allows us to look at whatever problem is in front of us through through new eyes and through a different lens as a means to how psychedelics can be influencing things outside of psychedelics, right? Just creativity in general. It's like taking a step back and looking at it from a different way. And I think that the psychedelics and the way that they really can, can get you to a, a place of ego disillusionment, and we can look at this in the fMRI, right? We can look and see how the default mode network multi-centers in the brain that, that, that work together to kind of create this whole concept of self. Like if there is a way to quiet that briefly, then that's almost like an internal reboot. And so then whatever's in front of you, maybe you're going to look at it a little bit differently. And I think that's where, at least, you know, my supposition, that's where a lot of the creativity uh, comes from as being influenced by psychedelics and, and new, um, new forms of disruption. I love how everyone is bringing up alternate forms of disruption other than how nature was thinking about it. But I guess we're infusing the psychedelics angle into it. So um, Bia, super curious to hear your thoughts on this topic of will psychedelics uh, cause disruption or, or will psychedelics research be disruptive in the field is the question. Okay. I, I just want to take a moment to to thank you for, for your uh, questions because you har- you obviously do a good homework uh, and you are disrupting my brain right now because I don't know exactly. I have so many thoughts. Uh, I don't know how to organize them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different angles. What's coming up to me is this phrase of, I was talking in my last um, round, uh, remember Ayuto Krenaki, that is a big indigenous leader in Brazil. And he says, Uh, The title of his book is The Future is Ancestral. And so I think we're going to disrupt things if we try to look at other forms of knowledge and other ways ahead. And although I am in support of science and I do have a job at MAPS and, you know, have published books about science, I think if we want to talk about disruption, we really have to look in other realms and, you know, I think for sure, for example, art is a big, powerful ways to disrupt our views of reality. And I have seen so much beautiful indigenous art as a form of standing in solidarity with the Amazon forest and all the attacks and all the economic interests and all the horrible things that are happening throughout the planet that are killing people and minorities and stealing lands and reproducing colonization and how we're still, you know, guided by those principles of extractivism, colonization, patriarchy. So disruption, it would be, uh, you know, it's about political change. It's about social transformation. It's about getting to the merits of, of capitalism and how sustainable, how many years do we still have ahead of us? 20, 30, how many years does the planet has ahead of us? Uh, in terms of the ecological crisis. And so I think disruption would be the scientists talking to indigenous leaders and getting into the real merits of of what they're doing and of the foundations 
of our big institutions. And if we want to talk about about creativity, it's been shown by science itself that if you have teams that are more diverse, for example, uh, research collaborations that count with different ethnicities and and ages and and nationalities, they tend to produce more creative thinking and questions that are less conventional. The very questions that you ask by in scientific research uh, are are biased and limited. And we know about drugs. Uh, a lot of research has been done about the harms of drugs instead of, are drugs good for you to improve, you know, playing the guitar, which we know it is, and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. So I want to conclude just by remembering that I was obsessed a few years back. I had a lot of phases and a lot of obsessions, and I am always obsessed with something. So I had a, my peer-reviewed obsession phase, which is there's a whole movement of scientists that are criticizing the system of peer review, and they have done a bunch of experiments like they submit the same article with two different institutional affiliations. And when they say the Tribeca, uh, Soul Development, Mountain, whatever, affiliation, and the other one, they put a fancy name of an important you know, university, a different zip code. Uh, and then one paper gets approved and other not. Or they just put brutal mistakes inside of papers on purpose and that doesn't get caught. So they do all kinds of wicked tricks <laughs> to show the limitations of peer review and how random peer review it is, how fetishized peer review it is. And if you're an author, and I am one, I mean, we all know sometimes you get a great reviewer and sometimes it's just bullshit. And also, you know, it's frequently small field and people know who is who writing what and personal vendettas get in the middle of it. And so I think if we're talking about disruption, we should we should think about peer review. That's 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 the essence of the scientific narrative that it's supposed to like be the ultimate element of neutrality. And it's a very limited tool. Again, I'm not saying it's not worth it. But the cool thing about being an anthropologist is that you can make a lot of questions and don't have answers, and that's fine. So, yep, Jayhan, I sent you. I sent you wanting to jump in on that one. Yeah, no, I love that. I've gotten the weirdest comments from peer review um, by people who like. I did a research study on you know cannabis adverse events that were being reported because we're trying to understand like where is it coming from, what are these adverse events, how are they codified in national databases, and what what is it actually saying. And we submitted the paper and the reviewer wrote back something like, we don't need to worry about this. Cannabis is causing global cancer rates to rise. And this guy's talked about an association of cannabis being legalized in California and like increases in cancer in like another country. And I was like, that's his comment for rejecting the paper. It was like crazy. And other times it's been great and helpful and the advice is constructive. But yeah, it is it is just a crapshoot. But I wanted to go back to something that Bia was talking about, which I thought was great, is the disruption of like the paradigm of how we do research and how we publish research. And what would be great is much like involving patients in the design of clinical studies, involving communities. So like whether it's cell culture, animal studies, clinical studies, why not start involving community leaders in the design of that? Like we might have a prejudice design of the study, like that side effect's not acceptable, but in the community, they'd be like, no, 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 that's not the side effect, that, 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 that's the effect, or those effects are tolerable. We're more concerned about this. Um, and so I think one way they're being incredibly disruptive is if we could show that having these diverse research teams of, let's just call it the public and the institution designing research studies, the communities, the public, having some say in that, um, or at least a seat at the table, you know, we might see a new breakthrough. Some very disruptive models of doing research might come forward. New ways of generating data, new ways of understanding that can lead to better predictions and better experiences and better outcomes. Right now, you know, we people sit up in their like lab cut off from the world saying, I think I know what's best from this patient population I don't interact with. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre if you if you put it in really objective terms. So I, I really like this idea of constantly pushing and breaking the mold of these research paradigms, these research models that we just accept and we never question and say, well, you know, would a cancer patient find the side effects of this treatment 
tolerable. We, we don't really ask. We wait till we're all the way in towards the end of the studies and the reviewers make the call. Um, and instead of, of integrating more commonly the community patient perspectives into these research design studies. Um, I think, I, you know, I can go on and on. You think about um, sociology or observational studies and working with the communities that you're surveying versus just surprising them with the survey. Um, you know, I think that there's so much there that, that we can learn um, from, um, I think, integrating diverse perspectives into research models. We'll uh, we'll officially be submitting this podcast recording to the authors of that nature paper so that they can uh, supplemental figure. To, yeah, so they can know how to reinsert disruptiveness into research. So um, we are getting a little low on time. Uh, I just wanted to check in uh, with Harry to see if you had any uh, further comments before we closed out the segment. Yeah, I think, again, it just really speaks to complexity. And I think, you know, not only who's included in the study, but, but what is the bias of the person that's doing the study, right? I mean, I think it's so important to see if this clearly is, and that doesn't mean that the data is invalid, but really seeing like who wants this study to, to come out, um, I think is incredibly important. And I think just as a clinician, I mean, I, I think that this is so important because, because in an evidence-based medicine, you really are hanging your hat on the new studies, new data. If something else comes out, and you've been doing something for five years, and then it clearly isn't the way to do it. Your the expectation is that you pivot immediately, right, to the current standard of care. And I, I think that 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 it also is taking advantage of physicians. You know, if they're if they're if they're in clinical practice, this is what they're spending their time doing. And so, so many of these studies, it's like there'll be a study that comes out and makes the news. To go in and like actually read it and interrogate it. And, and find the, the, the meaning, so to speak, nobody has the time to do that, right? It's only academic clinicians that are doing that. So I think just speaking to the vulnerability of a, of a practicing clinician is like where, where all these biases are coming from and who's really um, wanting to further whatever, whatever the subject of the, of the study is, is, is I think incredibly important. And I think that a lot of folks you know, just, just assume, oh, a, a doctor's looked at that study. It is, I mean, we're looking at that study, most of us anyway, I can't speak for all of them. It, it just a, for a fraction of a second. And then you like go from there. And that's so inherently flawed in medicine that, um, that we really have to come back to this whole thing of like, what we really need is better listening and better listening takes time. And that seems something that we're in short supply of, uh, at least in, in this culture. And I think that, I don't think we're going to get a better ending than to have better listening. I think that's perfect. So uh, thank you, listener, for joining us. Thank you to all of our panelists for joining the conversation today. A reminder for the listeners to check out Shakruna's website and to check out Shakruna's educational offerings as well as their in-person events. Uh, there's one coming up in San Francisco this spring that's going to be really great. Uh, we'd also like to thank Joe Leonardo, who is our audio engineer on the show, and our podcast cover artists who create uh, beautiful custom artwork for every episode. And we'll see you on the next show. 